course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. took an unexpected turn. Moment one. I'm 15 years old. My childhood friend was in the beginning throes of mental illness, something that would ultimately lead to his death. And his parents, they were completely desperate to get their kid to grab onto something positive, anything. And so they planned this trip to Colorado and asked my parents if I could come along and join them on their family trip. We lived in Florida. I'd never seen something that could be called a mountain. We went hiking, We stumbled to a lookout. I caught my breath. A door opened inside my mind. That moment was intended for my friend, but I was the one who grabbed on. Moment two. Early November, 2002, Flagstaff, Arizona. I opened the door to find Becca, fresh from the road and Red Rocks. We had already broken each other's hearts through youthful romantic ineptitude. This was probably a bad idea. A week later, she told me she wanted to stay. Alarm bells went off in my head. My logical self screamed, This is not what we had planned. This is not what we planned. She doesn't fit into your version of the future. I ignored my pragmatic side, certain I was making a bad decision, and I said yes. And, well, that worked out for the best. Moment three. It's February 2007. I've given up on my dream of writing. I pull together a few of my favorite stories decide that these few stories will be what I leave behind from that era. I want to put them online so my friends can listen. I close myself in the closet, hit record, and start talking. I call it the Dirtbag Diaries. Notice there's a nuance to these moments. There are plenty of decisions I've purposely made that I thought would send me in a specific direction. Deciding to become a dad, choosing not to take a job offer that would have led into newspaper journalism, every big trip I've ever said yes to. But today we're going to talk about the moments when we had no idea life was about to change. These moments when they happen, it's almost like you're watching them from a distance, like you're part of a movie or something. And if it were a movie, it would definitely be time to cue the strings. I'm on the threshold of 50 right now. I'm 49 years old and, you know, there's only a handful of moments that I can identify in my own life looking back through the rearview mirror um, as you know crossroads moments or threshold moments moments that represent a fundamental departure or change in direction from the path that my life was on up to that moment this is writer kevin fedarko you know when i stepped through the door of that boathouse the vision that confronted me was was so striking uh, and so jaw-dropping 
I was literally frozen in my tracks. When Kevin was 38, he found himself in Flagstaff, Arizona, base camp for the river rats of the Colorado River. He had an address, a slot in a wilderness first responder class, and no idea that once he walked through that door, his life would change. Today, contributing editor Brendan Leonard presents the story of Kevin's incredible book, The Emerald Mile, and the decade-long odyssey it took to create. What happens when we unknowingly walk through a door and life changes? Well, maybe it's time to find out. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In 2003, Kevin Fedarko was 38 years old and had worked at magazines his entire career. First for seven years at Time Magazine, then five years at Outside. He left Outside to freelance, and during a trip to the Himalayas, he realized he had no wilderness medicine experience. So when he returned to the U.S., he signed up for a wilderness first responder course in the Grand Canyon with a whitewater guiding company called Oars. Kevin had grown up on the East Coast and traveled all around the world to write stories, but he'd never seen the Grand Canyon before let alone hiked down or ridden a raft through it. When he walked into the Oars warehouse in Flagstaff, he saw something that would steer the next decade of his life into the big ditch. You know, I found myself looking into this, this dark room at this fleet of rowboats, whitewater dories, and they were painted in incredibly bright colors. Some of them had, you know, hand-painted scenes from the Grand Canyon you know, a frog or a canyon wren or a bighorn sheep on the transoms, on the sterns of these boats. And they had these amazingly beautiful names like Tickaboo or Dark Canyon or Tapestry Wall. But I think what struck me the most was just that I thought the lines of these boats were the simplest and most austere and most beautiful lines that I'd ever seen in any boat. Now, keep in mind, too, that I wasn't a boat person. Then Kevin's gaze was pulled up to the ceiling where these metal trusses ran across the length of the roof. Suspended from those trusses were jagged pieces of wood, each of which had the name of a boat emblazoned on it. It took him a moment to figure out what he was looking at. Then I realized, oh gosh, these... I was looking at pieces of what were left of the boats that had once been members of this fleet. And this was the only thing that was left of them after the savage hydraulics and the rapids at the bottom of the Grand Canyon had gotten done with them. And then, way off in the far corner of the warehouse, Kevin caught a glimpse of a gorgeous boat, mostly green, with bright red gunnels. He walked over to get a closer look. She was suspended from the ceiling, covered in dust, tilted at an angle where you had to sort of go get right up underneath her to see her name, which was the Emerald Mile. And somebody had put a piece of cardboard on the deck of that boat that read, Fastest Lucky Through the Grand Canyon. Looking up at those dories, Kevin, a writer in the middle of a successful career, A man not at all feeling like he was having a midlife crisis started to turn the gears in his brain to figure out a way to follow those beautiful boats down into the Grand Canyon. He spent the week completing the woofer class, giving him just a taste of the Grand Canyon. The towering walls, the constant powerful rush of water, the artifacts from ancient peoples, the millions of years of geologic history gradually revealed along the river's 280-mile length. And that was enough. After the trip, he wrote to Regan Dale, who had led the trip, and asked if he could get on as an apprentice boatman. Kevin's fantasy was to work his way up to one day captaining dory boats through the canyon's fierce rapids. Regan said, sure, come on down. 
Kevin started as a swamper, the bottom rung on the ladder of Grand Canyon river guiding. On his first trip, he listened, learned, did whatever the other guides told him to do, and didn't touch the oars of a boat. His second trip, he was allowed to row a boat. Not a dory, but a raft carrying clients' bags and equipment. I mean, the first trip where I was in charge of a boat, it was kind of awful. And I think that the pattern, the pattern that I experienced is probably something that's familiar to many people who, who are whitewater guides. I mean, if you get to the point where you've paid a sufficient amount of dues so that a commercial river outfitter is willing to allow you to be in charge of a baggage boat, you're feeling pretty good. When you pull out of Lee's Ferry, you're congratulating yourself on having gotten your own boat. You're reveling in this marvelous feeling of, you know, feeling the current pushing against the oar blades on either side of the boat. And you just feel wonderful. And then you start making your first series of mistakes. The thing about a river that makes it different from anything else aside from, say, an avalanche, is that it is moving and there is no, there's no pause button. You don't get to hit rewind if you do something wrong. And on a river, if you do something wrong, mistakes tend to build upon themselves with shocking speed and violence. If you're not paying proper attention to the current as you're entering the top of a rapid, you will find yourself at the mercy of a sequence of events which are quite capable of turning your boat upside down, a one-and-a-half-ton boat filled with much of the gear that's necessary to support a commercial river trip whose clients have paid up to $5,000 apiece for a once-in-a-lifetime journey down the Grand Canyon. That boat can be turned upside down, disemboweled, and torn to pieces, pretty much like a, a pack of hyenas will tear apart a wildebeest. And what's left of you and the boat and the little gear that the river may have decided to give back will wash up at the bottom and you will find yourself trying to explain why you f***ed up and contemplating that this may be the last time you will ever be permitted down inside the Grand Canyon as a commercial river person. And it's a very, very arrogant and delicate state of mind that is brutally punctured by the river. And it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when the river is going to do it. That's where you really, I think, absorb the very first lesson, which is that you can never, ever let down your guard. He was fully humbled by the great, violent Colorado. On his first few trips down the canyon, Kevin started to figure out that he wasn't exactly a natural behind the oars. Very rapidly, certainly within my first season, probably within the first month I was down there, you know, I managed to demonstrate such a colossal level of incompetency when it came to reading water and oarsmanship that it was pretty clear to, to not just me, but everybody down there, my, my boss, my colleagues, even the commercial clients who didn't know anything about rowing, that I had no business rowing a dory, which requires the highest set of skills because those boats are so delicate because they will break into pieces if you, if you collide up against a rock or, or make other types of errors. The dream of becoming a dory guide started looking a little out of reach. But Kevin had fallen in love with the Grand Canyon and wanted to find a way to keep working down there. I pulled one of my, one of the older guides I worked with aside at one point and said, you know, what do I do? And he said, well, what you need to do is you need to find a niche. You need to find a specialty where you can demonstrate 
that you are an indispensable part of a crew, that you bring something of value to the equation. And he was like, I honestly don't know what you can do because you're a terrible rower. And, you know, a lot of these guys that are down here are women, you know, they have a background in geology or botany or herpetology or they're really, really good storytellers, not written storytellers, but oral storytellers. They're short order cooks or they're really, really good at repairing stuff. You don't have a skill set that I can see, but you need to find something. And so I took a look around and the only thing I could identify that I could do was the one thing that like nobody else really wanted to do. And that was handling the poop. Kevin Fedarko, who had a master's degree from Oxford, who had written for Esquire and Time magazine, who had won awards for his work, would row the poo boat. Every evening when the group got to camp, he would set up the groover, the toilet seat perched atop an army surplus rocket box. And every morning, he would put it away and carry the rocket box, full of fragrant human waste and toilet paper, to his boat. Surely he was above this job of rowing a raft full of human feces down the river trying to pretend he didn't notice when the afternoon sun hit the boxes on his boat and warmed them up, pushing tiny wafts of poop-flavored air out the microscopic gaps in the seals and past his nose as he rode the raft no one wanted to row, let alone ride on. The Groover Boat. Someone has to row the Groover Boat. It's just a hard fact of life on river trips. But no one has to do it every single trip they work. Kevin did, though, adopting the Groover Boat, named the Jackass, more or less as his own. I'm not sure that I became the best poo boatman in the history of the Grand Canyon, but I became good enough at it that I was allowed to continue to work. And that's what I wanted. Why? Because every night, usually after most of the clients had gone to bed, the river guides would gather around the campfire or on the decks of their boats and talk. They told stories, the legends of whitewater adventure on the biggest river in the United States. And Kevin, the writer, listened. And if you sit and listen to those stories long enough, you eventually realize that, you know, those stories are about all different aspects of the Grand Canyon. But it seemed to me the longer I listened to those stories, uh, one month after another, one season after another, so many of those stories were revolving back to the story of one particular year, one epic year, one epic runoff. And then I started hearing stories about this little wooden dory called the Emerald Mile and the three deranged boatman who had decided to try and set a speed record by, you know, using the crest of that runoff as a hydraulic slingshot to propel themselves through the canyon as fast as possible. That that boat and her story contained everything. It was a vessel that could carry and contain the story of the entire canyon. That realization took a long time to coalesce in my mind. Kevin spent four summers as a baggage boatman in the Grand Canyon, taking 14 trips down the Colorado. Despite his ineptitude at the oars, he made it through all of those trips without ever flipping his raft. He wrote a few short stories about his experiences, but really, he was working on a much bigger story. The one of the fastest speed run through the Grand Canyon. The 1983 Dory Trip by guides Kenton Grua, Rudy Pechik, and Steve Reynolds. The men launched their boat at Lee's Ferry in the middle of the night in secret. The Park Service had halted all river trips in the Grand Canyon because of the enormous runoff threatening to breach the Glen Canyon Dam and send an enormous, destructive wave of water through the Grand Canyon. 
The plan was to take turns pumping the oars every 15 to 20 minutes. The guides powered down the river, riding a 70,000 CFS flow, emerging exhausted at the other end. Mile 277, the Grand Wash Cliffs, to break the speed record for rowing through the Grand Canyon, which was then 48 hours. For nearly six years after he stopped rowing boats on the Colorado River, Kevin researched, interviewed, wrote, and sculpted the biggest story of his life, weaving together hydrology, geology, history, engineering, and the legends of Grand Canyon guiding into a book titled The Emerald Mile. Simon & Schuster set the book's publication for March 2013, almost exactly ten years after Kevin had first walked into the Oars warehouse. But there was one small problem. Simon & Schuster had gotten into a disagreement with Barnes & Noble, the largest bookstore chain in America. The disagreement turned into a standoff, and when it ended, Barnes & Noble decided that it wouldn't carry any book by any of the publisher's first-time authors, including The Emerald Mile. That is a blow that, when it lands at the beginning of your career as a book writer, is essentially impossible to recover from. There's nothing that you can do to make up for more than half the bookstore's in the United States, refusing to carry your book. When Barnes & Noble refused to carry Kevin's book, his publisher's marketing plan fell apart. The marketing budget vanished, and the publisher's messages to reviewers at the New York Times and NPR never got delivered. And it's just a downward spiral that ends with the death of a book. I know it sounds like I'm being overly dramatic here, but if you spent 10 years of your life devoting yourself to bringing a book into the world and something like this happens, yes, it really does seem like a death. Kevin decided he wouldn't let the book die even without Barnes & Noble, and a marketing budget. And so I just flung myself into this phase that now seems like a blur, where, you know, I climbed into my pickup truck, I drove out of Santa Fe, and I basically barnstormed all over the Intermountain West. On a shoestring budget, Kevin drove from Moscow, Idaho, to Tucson, Arizona, and from Salt Lake to Kansas City, Missouri stopping at whatever independent bookstores would have him. I was eating a lot of apples at that point and sleeping in the back of the truck, not staying in hotels, taking baths in roadside streams and rivers, and basically living as a river guide, you know, which is not that bad. And that continued for the better part of a year. Independent bookstores in the Intermountain West began to embrace the book. Maria's in Durango, the King's English in Salt Lake City, and others. Some of his book signings went great. Dozens of people, standing room only, bookstore employees who loved and endorsed the Emerald Mile. Other times, the whole thing felt like he was pushing a rock up a hill. One night, he drove from Santa Fe to Oklahoma City to a not-so-huge crowd of six people. That evening, he drove on to Wichita, where he read to five attendees, if you counted the two bookstore employees. And the next day, to Lawrence, Kansas, where the crowd consisted of one of Kevin's friends, the bookstore owner, and her two cats. 
and this is the terrible thing about reading to crowds like that because you show up and you just have this sense of utter despair. But you can't really show it because, you know, the poor bookstore owner usually feels awful about what's happened. And so you have to be sort of very positive and bright. And then you have to muster enough energy to deliver an animated talk and presentation about your book and, and pretend that you're not, you're not just dying inside the whole time. And so that's what I did. And then I got into the truck and I was driving out of town that night. And, you know, my routine was I would have to drive out of town and like find some dirt road somewhere where I could pull off, wouldn't get rousted by the police and crawl into the back of the truck and sleep. And the only place to get food, I think there was in a McDonald's and I was headed to this McDonald's and, and I was stopped at an intersection and I just, I just burst into tears with the at the wheel of the truck. And it was just such an overwhelming feeling of despair because there was such a tremendous disproportion between what it took to bring the book into the world. I mean, making a book is an incredibly hard thing. You know, a decade of labor and reporting and writing. And in my case, like rowing other people's poo through the Grand Canyon and to have all of that happen and then find yourself you know, in the middle of Kansas, reading to a couple of cats is, is just a pretty awful moment. But overall, Kevin's efforts were starting to pay off. He discovered that even with all the sophisticated marketing ideas and strategies we have to sell books nowadays, the people who work at independent bookstores still drive quality works to the top. The Emerald Mile was selling. The nonprofit American Rivers wanted to join forces with Kevin after several employees had read the book. They wanted Kevin to continue his book tour, but to also speak about threats to the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon Escalade, a proposed gondola and restaurant project that would bring 10,000 visitors to the confluence of the Colorado and Little Colorado Rivers, a place where it's currently illegal to camp, and an enormous housing and commercial development in the South Rim village of Tucson, which would drain the aquifer that powers natural springs in the Grand Canyon. Although he came from the tradition of objective journalism and never thought he'd find himself blurring the lines between journalist and activist, Kevin discovered he had no problem speaking in defense of the canyon. As I became aware of these threats, I found that I was unable to maintain the role of a passive storyteller because I had an opinion. And my opinion was and remains that what is happening right now is fundamentally wrong. It's a violation of some basic principles of our duty as Americans to respect and maintain and continue to protect places that we have set aside, not only for our own enjoyment, but for the enjoyment of future generations of Americans. In August 2014, Kevin wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled, A Cathedral Under Siege, detailing the threats to the Grand Canyon. In September, he got a text message from his agent. The Emerald Mile had landed on the New York Times bestseller list in two categories, sports writing and adventure writing, even without Barnes & Noble. But he didn't feel quite like giving the finger to a big bookstore chain and claiming a victory. In the same way that rowing the poo boat was this very kind of humiliating experience, there was something about the process of driving around the Intermountain West in a pickup truck and meeting actual people, bookstore owners and readers and people who were really, really passionate about conservation, having 
bad days and good days, having to maintain a sense of momentum, even in the face of things looking really, really bleak. I mean, I, it would be a lie to say that I, I really enjoyed that process, but I think it's brought me to a different level of understanding in terms of not just how books are brought into the world, but what happens once they arrive. I mean, I used to think that when you finish a book, there's like this thud that occurs somewhere in New Jersey or China or wherever it is that these things get printed. And your book like lands in the world and then it gets sent out to bookstores and it gets sold and you get reviewed and you move on to the next thing. And the arrival of a book in the world is really, it's the end of one part of the process and the beginning of a whole nother chapter. The connections I've developed, the conversations that I've had, the insights that other people have shared with me, all of this has been on top of creating the story. And in some ways it's been almost as important and almost as fulfilling as actually writing the book, maybe in some ways more so. Kevin said that back in 2003, right around the time he saw the Emerald Mile hanging in the warehouse, he had started to tire of the type of adventure journalism he'd been doing. Fly into a faraway place, stay for a few weeks or a month, and write a story about it. He wanted a place, a landscape, to live in, to be a part of, and to tell a story about. In the Grand Canyon, he found his landscape. It redirected the course of his life, taught him humility behind the oars of the jackass, and gave him his greatest story to tell. And now he can't help but fight to protect it. I continue to grow as, as a person and as a writer. I continue to be pushed in new directions. I continue to be inspired by this place. Maybe that's why I wanted, what I wanted so badly from the very beginning was to develop a relationship with a place that was based on more than just simply parachuting in and returning home. The more we engage with it and in it, the more it enriches us. The deeper we become involved in establishing a connection with it or attempting to protect it or just simply thinking about it at a deep enough level that we might have something that we feel is worth saying and communicating to others about it. It reshapes and transforms us. That's why it matters. That's why land is bedrock. That the land itself, the landscape itself, the nature that flourishes on it, that to me is the most, is the most profound thing of all. He was born to be among the movers and the shakers. All them guys shook up and now they're gone. A huge thank you to Kevin Fedarko and Brendan Leonard for today's episode. Please visit our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, to find out more about the fight to protect the Grand Canyon from the proposed gondola. We have posted links to the websites of two of the organizations heading up the opposition, Grand Canyon Trust and Save the Confluence. We have also posted the link to Kevin's website, where you can purchase your own copy of The Emerald Mile. I'm going to do a shameless plug right now. It's one of my favorite books I've ever written. So, uh, nice work, Kevin. It's great. It's one of the best outdoor books I've ever read. Seriously, I think you guys should check it out. Music today by Andrew Ferris, Finn, Gordon Bell, Life Has Teeth, The Little Glass Men, and Jason Tyler Burton. Our music comes courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley, free music archive, and from our listeners. The song playing right now comes from Diary's friend Jason Tyler Burton. As always, you can find links to the artists on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from you. Thank you to everyone who has contributed to keeping this thing going for the past eight years. If you want to help too, 
We are accepting pledges. You power the Dirtbag Diaries. Go to our website, look on the side, and you can donate there. We'll keep the stories coming as long as you keep listening. Support for the Diaries comes from the good people of Patagonia. I know we said that our new film force would debut online on March 9th, and, well, we kind of lied. Well, not, not really, but the release got pushed back. So starting April 1st, you will be able to stream the film at Patagonia.com. Check it out. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. They just introduced the Slow Ride Session IPA. Go slow-mo at newbelgium.com. And support also comes from Kuat Racks, the little company who believed they could make a better bike rack. They now offer their easy-to-use, slick-looking Envy rear rack in black. Get one in time for the mountain biking season at kuatracks.com. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Brennan Leonard, Jen Altschul, and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in, and I am really sick. Ugh. Take care.